Welcome to the Reinventing Education podcast. Podcast for anyone interested in reinventing what education is. I'm Rob McLeod, joined as always by Brennan O'Leary. And today we're talking about the origin story of traditional school and continuing our narrative of how education moved and evolved from traditional school which values security, into a more mainstream approach of school, which values opportunity. How are you today, Brennan? I'm not doing too bad, Rob. I am in my summer holidays. Should have been flying to England to visit my mother. Unfortunately, due to the current situation, not possible. However, attempting to enjoy a staycation in the O'Leary house. How about yourself? Staycations for us this summer. We were going to go visit my mother and the rest of the family as well. Dad and everybody else too in Canada, but similar due to travel restrictions, long periods of quarantine with an 11-month-old, we thought, nah, it's not the, not the greatest idea. So today, we're going to attempt to wrap up the season, a season where we've been exploring the traditional school in great depth, schools that are informed by the value of security. And what we're going to attempt to do is to kind of step back for just a moment and explain why and how this traditional approach to education came onto the scene, and then to discuss some of the babies and bathwaters of this traditional approach as we shift into the mainstream school, that mainstream opportunity version of school, that will kind of be our core topic for our next season. And as we move into the mainstream school and start to talk more about that, we realize that it has its own babies in bathwater. And so today, I guess we're going to look at what the traditional school brought and what problems it solved from the previous value system. And when it's operating at its healthiest in a traditional sense, why does the mainstream value still look at it and see issues? And what are those issues? And how does it then attempt to address those? So I think that's what we're trying to do in the next 45 minutes, to just leap through a few thousand years of human history and uh, set it all out in, in list form. And oversimplify it with a few sentences that's attempting to synthesize and summarize millions of factors together. So we know that this is a sort of thousand foot view of things. Of course, we would love to, to pick it apart. There is certainly space for criticism on our narrative, but I think it's more useful than it isn't. So if you've been following us, usually we start most episodes explaining that our approach to understanding school involves understanding three different value systems that impact what education is. And those three different values impact three different kinds of school. And we say there are traditional schools, mainstream schools, and progressive schools. And this narrative of ours is largely inspired by both spiral dynamics and the integral stages of development, pioneered by Ken Wilber, more kind of pop culturally known through the work of Frederick Lulu in the Reinventing Organizations book. So if you are familiar with that system, you might be wondering like, hey, you guys have started with the blue or amber value of security in those stage models. There are stages before that, guys. Why are those not included? And the short answer for that is the red value stage, the power stage, which precedes the um, security value, that blue or amber security value, it didn't have a version of nationwide mandatory schooling. That's why our narrative kind of begins in the late 1700s with this mix of the security and opportunity value. So to do it justice, to explain what some of the babies are with the 
traditional approach to school, that security approach, we figured it's worthwhile to go back and explore that red value, that pre-feudal power value. So here are a few bullet points. You can think of it as being egocentric, exploitative, impulsive, kind of has the paradigm like I as an individual, I determine what happens for me and for others. This is that worldview of like the world is a jungle out there and it's survival of the fittest. And it's all about, you know, kind of asserting yourself. I am taking charge without taking others into account. And it's really all about immediate gratification of impulses and that sense of needing to fight for one's own interest. And you could boil their life philosophy down to, I only trust myself and what I want and what I want now. Because the future is a pretty uncertain thing. We know that at any point, things could be overturned if someone else more powerful comes along, for example. So there are red or power versions of education, but we're not diving deep into those. And of course, on the institutional level, education certainly existed before the 1700s in various forms. But we've started our story in the late 1700s, specifically with Prussia, because prior to that, there was no nationwide attempt at mandatory schooling. And although we don't call education or school nationwide mandatory education, that is what we're doing. And this is a really new human project. This is an, if you look at human history, this idea of everyone going to school and education system that started 300 years ago or so. And with this emergence of nationwide mandatory education in the late 1700s, which then spread to essentially every country in the world over the next 120, 150 years or so, you could be, you could actually see this as an attempt to increase the security. So again, that's that blue amber value, attempting to increase the level of security within society, but do it in a more efficient and effective way, which arguably is an approach to something that's coming from the opportunity value, that more orange value. So we see the rise of mandatory nationwide schooling alongside an explosion in capitalism, the development of industry, the industrial revolution. We see economies exploding. We see populations rising. We see length of life, arguably quality of living, all arising alongside of this. And essentially, societies that adapted nationwide schooling saw it as an advantage over other countries that didn't. And this initial version of nationwide schooling is what we're calling the traditional school, the schooling that is based around the idea of security, that core organizing value. And certainly we can drop kind of cartoonish images in our mind of what this looks like, but it is still something that definitely exists to this day in practice and in execution. So to give the devil its due, because Brendan and I just naturally have a lot of allergies and criticisms towards this traditional approach, we do want to celebrate it and acknowledge why it's important. And we're going to do this by looking at those red, the previous value, the red or power value bathwaters, and to acknowledge what the traditional security-minded blue, amber babies are that came along and solved those problems from the previous value. So you've got this previous red power value, and it has problems that have emerged out of it, and they are largely answered by the blue, amber, traditional security approach 
to school, society, and culture. Yeah, so obviously the traditional security value actually brought some brand new things to the table. So the red power value is very much about being impulsive and having displays of power, which could, could lead to chaotic situations in which it wasn't really possible to trust the people around you with to too much of a degree. Whereas what the traditional kind of feudal value tried to bring in was to uphold your role and your position, bringing the order and structure and predictability, which just made survival more likely and just made it so that it was very clear where everybody needs to be and what everybody should be doing. And therefore it did allow that trust to increase. So that's one of the things that was, was brought in. And as we're looking at these, you can make connections to think that we're kind of describing larger cultural patterns, but then we can see how those larger cultural patterns in this case then are echoed and ripple through the way that we approach education, with education being sort of a social system to reinforce that approach or those values to societies. And I think what's important to see is that yeah, by the time we got to the 1700s, these pre-feudal eras were 1500 years or so in the past. However, on an individual level, they still existed and still to this day exist within all of us. School was not just to bring society as a whole into these values, but to bring individuals in line as well. And we've spoken a whole bunch of times about young children coming into school with this red power value coursing through their veins and the traditional school attempting to bring them into line with their traditional values. So one of the things you might see as a bathwater in this red power paradigm is this orientation towards the I or the self. So dominance, power, oppression, every person for themselves and the king of the hill is the person that takes more power than anyone else. You either lead or you follow. You're either top dog or you're not. So the way the traditional security value evolved to take this into account or to deal with this was to ask you to have self-discipline and to contribute to the village, to the community and to a thing that is greater than themselves. What this does is add security. It adds strength against dangers of attack and natural disaster. It basically makes us stronger and everything else can be built on top of that strength this red value. There is the emphasis on the individual who is striving for self-preservation and also socially striving for respect. When we shift into the traditional value, as Brennan was just saying, there's more of the emphasis on group dynamics and stepping away from yourself. And here in the traditional version of school and this within this security value, we see the individual striving for belonging and wanting to be part of a group and actually wanting shared importance or even pride for that matter over personal respect. Going back again to the red power value, there's this sense sometimes of being free from guilt or shame. And possibly you can see this on the individual level when you think of the crazy actions of some youngsters uh, who don't yet have that in them. Whereas on the traditional approach to school, that security value, we see like a desire to not feel guilt and shame. Largely because the society around you, the system around you in that security value is going to shame you for 
anything you are doing where you step out of line, where you step out of line with things that serve the group, that serve that society around you that is larger than you as a, as a person and will shame you for not upholding those shared values of the group. And again, we can also talk about short-term versus long-term. The red power value tends to be fast, impulsive. What matters is what is in the moment and wants to make it happen now. Whereas the security value, because it's going for security, has this long-term thinking in mind. I mean, is willing to play the long game and sees no reason to change what is happening in a moment for fear of disrupting that consistency, that stability, and that security. You're more likely to get security from what you know than from what you don't know. This also allows for more complex ideas because things can be built up over time. You don't have to worry that in a second or in a snap decision that what's been growing will be taken away and, and thrown out. And when we connect this to education, we've talked about the idea of the master and the apprentice being kind of the, the metaphor for a traditional approach to education. And there is this idea of security coming from learning from an expert. So whether it's a master at their skill or a craftsperson, this is a really strong idea. The idea that you can be brought into a lineage that's bigger and greater than yourself, but requires you to put in the time and effort to be able to get to the place where you master those skills. And there's also the expectation of competency from you, from you doing your role, meaning that things for you, but also for everybody else, will work more reliably, more securely if we know and trust that everybody is doing their part together. I think one thing worth adding is that, of course, you could say, should I have no self-preservation? And should my life be ruled by guilt and shame? And should I never do anything with impulsivity? Well, of course not. And even the security traditional value would say those things exist and they are part of you. However, when it really comes down to it and there's a crunch and you have to choose between that long-term thinking and that fast impulsivity, we need you to go with that longer term, more secure thinking. When it comes down to self-preservation versus the belonging and the adherence to supporting the group, we need you to go with that support of the group. And the thing about all of these is about context. What are those values that are at the center of gravity or calling the shots in the place where you live in that time and that place? And if you're in a place where that red paradigm, that power value is calling the shot, then there would be an expectation you would adhere to those values. And so, of course, these red power values that the traditional society is describing as bathwaters or viewing as bathwaters would not be. They would be right and appropriate and helpful for your context. However, if you're in medieval Europe or even later, then those traditional security-minded societies would view your, your red power values as harmful. Likewise, if you're a student in a traditional school and you begin to act out some of these red power values of my freedom from guilt, my impulsivity, and me being king of the hill are what's important here, that would not be well received in that traditional classroom. And so a uh, criticism of the red power value by the, by the traditional security value mindset would be, yes, you're making your decisions quickly. However, you're not taking into account that longer term, more communal oriented view. One thing worth looking at and considering is the way that the red power value and the security traditional blue value deals with people who transgress their limits of acceptability. And the red value would seek 
to hurt you in such a way that you could not act again. Whereas the blue traditional value, the security value, is more likely to hurt you in a way that you learn from it so that you don't come back and repeat those mistakes. And so, yeah, the red value would seek to exterminate you, whereas the blue value would, would seek to, to punish you with a chance for redemption. And we did speak about this a little in our last episode when we talked with Lenny about how the traditional value has a space for love and has a space to bring you back into the fold if you have transgressed. And sure, you can say, hey, medieval Europe, not a hotbed of justice. And of course, that's the case. However, when you compare it against the pre-feudal chaotic state, maybe of, of how a chieftain or a warlord might oversee their community versus how, say, a feudal baron or king might, you can begin to see at least a chance for redemption that begins to emerge at this security value. And if we look at school, traditional schools are notorious for their physical punishments. However, the punishments are there to show that you have overstepped a boundary and that you should come back inside and rejoin us. It's a chance to teach you a lesson. It's not a way to exterminate. It's not a way to remove you from ever hurting us or yourself again in this way. And maybe the last bathwater in the eyes of the traditional security value is that the red power paradigm is driven by this passion and is always on a mission. And again, Again, the critique is not the passion or the mission. The critique is the impulsivity that underlies it. The issue is with the meeting of needs, immediate needs in an impulsive way. And the idea of, I'm going to take this right now. This is my mission. And you're either with me or against me. They would struggle with this idea of the I-centric rather than something that benefits the community in the longer term. The way the traditional security value would view this and turn it into a positive would be to say our missions are to uphold our duties to each other and our duties to a lineage and tradition that got us to where we are today. And whereas the, the red power value might say you're either with me or you're against me, the traditional security mindset would say you're either with us or you're against us. In the power value, your loyalty is for those that you consider close friends. And the idea is, as we move into the traditional approach, the positive thing here is we actually enlarge your circle of care, that you're not only loyal to those who are your friends, or possibly even just in your lineage or bloodline. We now become loyal to the, not only those in our lineage, our group, but also to our society, our nation. So again, not to say that there aren't issues with that, but we are seeing this growing circle of care and concern. And there's that sense of belonging to a larger group that's more than just you, your bloodline, some people that you bullied into following you. There's this idea of we're all in this together, and that's better off than every person for themselves. So one way to conceptualize this might be that one of the higher points of those traditional values was the emergence of nation states. And we went from these from these smaller chiefdoms into villages and, and eventually into nations and the hierarchies of power and the traditions and the communities grew together into these traditional security-minded values. However, as you move beyond the 16th century and especially through the Industrial Revolution and then into the 20th century, a newer mindset emerged. 
with a new set of values that we're calling the mainstream or opportunity value. And just as how the traditional values may have emerged with this, with notions of feudalism and hierarchy, then the mainstream opportunity value emerged in line with the growth of capitalism. And so if we viewed the traditional security-minded school as a way to overcome that red power value, both on a societal level and within individuals. And of course, by the time traditional schools came around in the 17th century, that pre-feudal era was already more than a thousand years in the past. But of course, the security value will always say you can't be too careful. It may re-emerge if we're not vigilant. But importantly, it still exists within all of us and especially within the kind of children that are entering our school. Those small children entering school, they need us to show the way in those traditional values. That's how they will learn to operate within our traditional society. And so that red power value is not really very adaptable in the blue, the traditional security-minded school attempted to bring people in line with these traditional values because what's more powerful than me? Well, we are more powerful than me. So on that individual level, children, as we say, often enter the school between the age of three and six with this power value very much embedded in their mindset, in the way they live their lives. And the traditional school sees its role as bringing those children in line and having them to submit themselves to the authority of the traditional school. And so as this mainstream opportunity value emerged, of course, it could still see some value in those in that traditional mindset. However, it began to critique them. And so we got to the point where those facets of the traditional mindset of upholding your role, having self-discipline, adhering to a master in authority, and having those long-term plans based on tradition and lineage, they were seen as no longer being the way to move forward as a human race and as an educational system and as individuals. And so what we see now, Rob, is those things that were implemented in a traditional security-minded society to overcome the issues with the red power paradigm are now being viewed as bathwaters in the eyes of the mainstream opportunity capitalist mindset. So what are some of those bathwaters in the eyes of the mainstream opportunity value when it looks at the traditional security-minded value? What are some of those things that they say, yes, those are things that are holding us back and we need to change? So one of them is... The new mainstream value really values transparency, to be clear on things, largely so they can see what's working and what's not. And in this traditional approach, and let's we can speak more specifically to school, there tends to be a real concern over what information is shared. And the traditional school, especially, tends to avoid transparency because the more that people outside of the school know the more questions might might arise, and that begins to erode at that security. So there's this desire to avoid transparency or explain every step of what we're doing. Whereas when we shift into the more mainstream approach to school, there's accountability on every level. We've lost that idea of, no, we just leave the teachers to do what they're doing because we trust in what they're doing. Now at that mainstream opportunity value, the orange in the stages of development systems, everybody is checked on and their responsibilities, they have to prove themselves largely through data. And it makes problems and challenges visible so that they can be overcome, ideally to make things more effective, more efficient, 
And we do this through goal setting. And just that idea of goal setting introduces that idea of, yeah, we can be where we are, but we need to improve. We need to get better. And that is not something that is on the radar for that traditional approach. Again, if we go back to the traditional school, we see this master kind of expert and apprentice model. So the teacher is the master, the expert. Students are the apprentices. And essentially, the master and the expert, they know the one right way to do things. And that's certainly going to be my way. The expert, the master, they wouldn't do something that's not the right way. Whatever the best way is, they are doing it the best way. This becomes a bathwater in the eyes of the mainstream schooling because they believe that there are multiple solutions to a problem. There are multiple ways to solve a problem. And some of those are more effective and some of those are less effective. And they might get some of these ideas through using logical thinking, using data, whatever it is. But there's this emphasis in the mainstream school of what's the most effective and efficient way to be doing things. And there's a pursuit to find that most effective and efficient way. And sadly, for that master and apprentice model, often those old ways of doing things might work. They might be effective, but they might not be the most efficient. And the mainstream school approach comes in saying, how can we get the most out of our time? We don't want to be wasting anybody's time here. I think this mainstream set of values is based on what we call enlightenment values. So this idea of democracy and liberty and equality and freedom and choice. So it's not just about bringing in a new idea, oh, there's multiple solutions to this problem. It's those are built on top of a core shift away from lineage and tradition and masters knowing all the answers and having one way to suddenly you or we can probably work out a really good way to do this. And of course, there's a time for masters and experts. And of course, there is a time and a place where there's one right way to do things. But there's also a time and a place for multiple solutions and exploring. And again, if you're coming down heavily on either one of these, then that's a very good indication of your own values. Well, actually, of course, the expert should be leading and there is one way. Okay, you're not wrong. There's partial truths there. And you're probably leaning more towards the traditional values. Is it the right values for now? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. So one of the other things that became a bathwater in the in the traditional kind of paradigm when viewed from the mainstream point of view, there's sometimes they're unclear about what success is. And that's because the master knows what success is and they don't necessarily have to spell it out for the student. They can see it. It's common sense. And if you follow me and trust me, you'll get there. However, sometimes definition of success can actually be unclear and changed by authority without really too much explanation or discussion. This was seen as unclear and to some extent unfair. And so what the mainstream value tried to do is address those inconsistencies of the definition of success by having clearly defined set goals that we work towards. This is a mindset that's built on growth. And these Success criteria were fair, they were standardized, they allowed for equality, they allowed for everybody who took this test or this assessment or did this activity, you know where, you know where you're going, you know the steps and you know what success looks like and it's available to all of us. And we make it clear how we assess. So it was really an attempt to be more fair, transparent and clear in the idea of success. 
And in line with that, teaching in the traditional kind of school, when a teacher looked at a student's work, as as Rob mentioned earlier, I think it was more about errors. It was more about what students cannot do. And this leads to a somewhat negative and fear-based system in the eyes of some, especially in the eyes of the mainstream and, as we'll go on, the progressive school. And the idea of telling a student feedback was uh, the idea is once a student has shown work to a teacher what they needed to hear was their mistakes so this was very much about marking as we move towards the mainstream value we start to hear the term feedback because feedback is the idea that this is a growth model it's not a model about me seeing how accurate and correct you are against this standing stone. It's about moving towards taking steps towards greater and greater competency, greater and greater knowledge and so on. And the feedback that you get in a mainstream school would emphasize what you can do and celebrate what you can do. There's, there's an emotional aspect to it that we know that we can motivate you by actually celebrating the steps you're taking towards your next goal and your successes. But we're also going to give you some very specific feedback on what you can do to improve. And again, that's a criticism that the mainstream school would have of the traditional school that any any attempts to show a student what they should do next are not always clear and specific in heading towards the goals. And so this is much more of a coaching model in the mainstream school. It's much more about setting clear goals and celebrating those steps. And generally, that's what we see now in our schools. That's, that is across the board within mainstream schools, what you would expect in terms of teaching, learning, and assessing. So we see in the mainstream school there's real openness and willing to change if a good case can be made for change. If we jump back to the traditional approach to school, we often see a very big resistance to change. And the reason for this is from the traditional mindset, if you put yourself in their shoes, there is one correct way of doing things. And it's the way we are doing them because it's the right way of doing things. It's the way that's always worked. Usually they can even say, you know, this is how I was taught when I went to school. It worked for me. I'm in the spot where I can teach people now. Clearly this is effective. And it tends to defer to tradition and authority without having to get into the specifics of why it is the right way. Now, obviously, as we've already said multiple times, when we shift into the mainstream school, it's just looking at results. It's using logic, not tradition and the authority of individuals. It's looking for results to prove what we do and why we do it. It's looking for that optimal efficiency and effectiveness to carry out how things are done in a school. And one of the ways we can see this is even just differentiation. So you've got a class of 30 kids in front of you, and as teachers, we know in any subject, in any skill, there's going to be a a variety of ability levels in front of us. In the traditional mindset, They may acknowledge that, but there's still this idea of like a center of gravity, that everything is the same for everyone in the class, and there's no real differentiation. The idea that we're moving through this together, and as long as you've put in the time and the effort, I'm going to make sure that you come out on the other end with everything that you need. Whereas when we jump to the mainstream school, one that has very clear ideas of a variety of goals and aims and has defined what success will look like, well, it acknowledges that range of abilities and could allow for different strategies to be employed, could allow different 
types of support for students, can allow for different types of feedback, can allow students to work on different work. They can allow some students to work on less work or more work. But the idea is that any differentiation that's happening is happening because there is this clear articulated goal of what we need to do. And perhaps we're a little behind that goal with some students, perhaps we're past that goal. And what we do is we measure where you are at and provide you with what you need to be growing and moving. If we jump back into the traditional school for a moment, we look at how decisions are made. And there is this authority, there is this idea of individual authority that if you are upholding your duty as a teacher, you are an expert. However, what happens is you can have a school of 20 different experts. And although there, of course, will be some shared ideas about how things should go, there tends to be a priority on that expert, that master's personal opinion on how teaching should be done. And if you try to then zoom out from one classroom where a teacher has a preference towards one way of things, you zoom out and see that in another classroom that's not happening, you realize that you've kind of got maybe like 30 different separate schools happening under the same roof. You lack that consistency between all of these different experts doing things the way that they feel are the best way to go about doing things. Where this shifts and changes in the mainstream school is we see that the curriculum essentially has that authority, not the individual teacher. So the scope of the curriculum, what's in there, the sequence, the order, or the kind of flow of how things are done. It's the curriculum that determines what is learned to a large degree informs how things are learned, or at least how they are approached, and it provides those objectives. So it's taking away that power from individual teachers to kind of be masters of their universe to saying, no, 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 we're dealing with this national curriculum that says anybody in our country is expected to execute this in their classrooms. This is what you need to carry out, and we're going to measure your ability to do so within the school. And I don't think we can underestimate how important that idea of checks and balances on oversight. So this accountability idea and the idea of measuring, moving towards goals, they're fundamental to the switch between the traditional mindset and the mainstream mindset. And that's where we are right now. We may be moving towards other paradigms and mindsets, but we're very deeply in 2020 in that world of measuring and accountability and oversight. Some of the other things that the mainstream schools would look at in the traditional schools and critique or question is the teacher, again, we talked about curriculum, the teacher having preference over what's taught, when it's taught, how it's taught. You know, the teachers may be heavily reliant in a traditional school on a textbook, working page by page through the textbook, or just picking and choosing whatever they felt was appropriate for their class. And there may be some syllabus, but there's a lot of autonomy over what, when, and how. The critique that the mainstream school would give is that oh, this, this lacks consistency, as you just said, Rob. And so in terms of the curriculum came in, but on top of the curriculum, we'd have agreed upon models of how to teach. The traditional style of teaching sometimes called chalk and talk. The teacher will stand at the front for as long as they want, 50%, 70% of the lesson time. And then there may be some undifferentiated work that all students will carry out, continue it at home if necessary. That's the lesson. In the mainstream school, you'll see a whole variety of models of teaching and learning. The simplest one, the three-part lesson, 15 to 20 minutes with the whole class, 20 to 30 minutes 
children working in small groups or on their own, a five to 10 minute check-in at the end. That's the British mainstream model. And you'll see this all around the world. It's it, Sometimes it's seen now as so natural in the mainstream, it's not even viewed as a model, but when you compare it to the traditional school, the chalk and talk, it is a very clear model. And it applies to every single lesson that's taught. But there are more complex models and models that attempt to do things in different ways. We've talked about the Readers and Writers Workshop before. We've used a model called the Daily Five, which has stations where students will move around and do different activities at different times. What these models do is that they give you greater capacity for differentiation and the teaching of complex ideas because you can move around with small groups and you can give children very different things to do. And as that becomes more and more important in the mainstream mindset, these models grow to greater importance and a mainstream school teacher who looks back at a traditional school teacher and sees the the sage on the stage talking for 45 minutes of an hour lesson that wouldn't go down too well with them that would not be seen as efficient effective or best serving the students likewise any important marking such as tests and exams, especially composition of longer pieces that are that don't have a clear answer scheme, they might be moderated by multiple teachers so as to get the best view, a shared opinion on what good is. And again, we're saying that authority has its place, but if we put our heads together and share and talk, we're probably going to get a better and more helpful view of how to move our students forward. And the last thing we're going to talk about here is that this idea, the as we've mentioned a few times already, the mainstream opportunity value seeks optimal efficiency. It knows that our resources are limited and the idea is what can we do with these limited resources? What's the very best and the most we can do with these resources we have, whether they're human resources, physical resources, time, money, energy? How can we carry out our processes and meet our goals in the most efficient and effective way? Now, we counter that with the traditional value, which very much relied on tradition and authority. Well, we've always done it this way, or the people in charge are telling us to do this. So let's not question if it's the best way or question how we're doing it. It's just how we do things. And again, there's a time and a place for that. But the mainstream school would very much view this as a, as a bathwater on a quite a fundamental level. And so we've run through a whole bunch there of how the blue traditional security value came into a world where the red power paradigm was in place and really brought some babies to the table that 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 put those those unhealthy aspects of the red power paradigm in its place. Then Around 1,500 years later, the mainstream opportunity value wagged its finger and said, yes, those things might have been helpful in medieval Europe. They're not going to serve us in 20th century Britain. So Rob, where are we at? What have we learned? Well, hopefully we've seen that as we enter a new stage or a new value, there are solutions that come with it, but there are also new problems that emerge. We've now just spent this season discussing the traditional school, that security value. And now I think we've kind of started to set the table for some of the babies, the good things that will emerge in this next value of opportunity. We're showing how it's solving a lot of the problems that the traditional value brings into it. And in our next season, I think we'll just continue to expand more on the babies, the good things of a mainstream approach to education, but of course, inevitably reveal how it also introduces a new slew of problems and challenges, new bathwater that the next value, that 
progressive approach to school, that inclusion value, will attempt to solve. So it's never like we've got the answer. It's just a new approach solves some old problems, but will introduce some new challenges as well. And one thing we're talking about with the fourth value, that post-progressive integral value of integration. What's important is that the fourth value of integration sees that there is something of value. There are babies in all of these systems that have gone before, all of these values that have gone before, including the red power value, but also the security, the opportunity, and the inclusion values. So we're going to keep digging and we're going to keep asking ourselves, how can we reinvent education? How can we make education into something that does not lose what is wonderful about each of these values, but also make sure that it applies to the context of our entire school, our entire nation, our entire globe, and also the individuals within it? Yeah, and I think that is our whole point here as we move towards a more post-progressive integration value is the idea that we don't want to make the mistake that as we move from one value system to the next one that we assume that anything connected to that previous value needs to be lost the idea is not that the previous stage is only bathwater. there are many babies many positives that we tend to just discard because they're associated with the previous value and this happens all the way up through each of these stages and values and we're trying to say yeah no we can continue to change things but we just want to make sure these things are not lost and forgotten because we will likely be better off if we can include but not just include but integrate these previous values all together we will be better off to be able to adaptively access the positive components of each of these value systems i think we did it rob i think we did so, it I think more or less we have, yeah. So, Brennan, enjoy your summer break. Will do. We'll see you in late August. Thanks, Brennan. Bye, Rob.